0: Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. For season three, we are sitting down with some of the most successful founders to better understand what entrepreneurship means to them, the operational processes they have employed on their startup journey, and what lessons they've learned along the way. This week's episode is with Felix Oswald, founder of GoStudent. GoStudent's on a mission to build the number one global school. They're an ed-tech unicorn that connects students with tutors in private one-to-one classes, but they have a whole platform to improve learning and education. GoStudent was founded in Vienna, but they're growing very quickly across Europe, and they're hiring a lot in the UK as well. So let's hear about how Felix has built the company. Hi, Felix, welcome to Riding Unicorns. We're delighted to have you here.
1: Hi, James. Hi, Hector, thanks for having me.
0: No problem at all. Great to have you. So Felix, for season three, we are interviewing founders of successful companies. We really want to understand what does being an entrepreneur mean to
1: you? For me, it means building an obsession around a problem and solve that problem by all means. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are like a child and you need extra pocket money. So you, you see the problem. You have no money. You need the extra money. Then solving that issue, finding a creative way of earning some extra money. This is for me also like a very nice example from very early on how to build up that entrepreneurial spirit and mindset. It
2: was like earning a few extra extra pounds was a motivation or euros, I suppose, for you was a motivation for a very young age. So what is it that really motivates you to build big business and to work
1: so long as I'm sure you do. So we founded Go Student like over six years ago, an education company connecting children with awesome teachers. And the real motivation for building that company originated from my own childhood. I was quite fortunate. I had really great teachers in my life, my parents, my grandfather who taught me everything around mathematics. I also later on studied mathematics at university and, and built a real passion around that. And for me, it always felt it's one of the biggest problems in education, finding great teachers and this lack of access to great teachers. So solving that problem and providing that value to kids all over the world, this is this is what drives me. This is what keeps me going on a daily basis.
0: Along the way, you've probably had to make thousands of important decisions that have contributed towards the success that you've had so far. What is... One decision that you look back on and
1: think, I got that really right. You're absolutely right. There were many of these decisions. Just to give you one example of a decision that is related to the development of the business model. Education is very tricky when it comes to finding the right business model, because often the people using your service are not the ones paying for the service. In our case, we have the kids, the children using the live online teaching service, but the parents are paying for that. And when we started with GoStudent, we actually started advertising the service, which back then was only a chat service. So we advertised a chat service, helping kids ask questions via chat and then find teachers to answer them. That chat service was completely for free. And we kept going on that service and we tried out a lot of different business models over the course of like three and a half years. And then after three and a half years, we took the final decision to basically eliminate that business model at all and start shifting from the student to the parents directly and starting also to give them a phone call. So this business decision, focusing on the parent side and picking up the phone, trying to explain our service to them and understand what they need, this was one of the toughest decisions super interesting so founders and and investors talk a lot about finding product
2: market fit and i think it's really interesting how you know we all have seen lots of different online tutoring platforms marketplaces for a long time and yet you guys have really emerged as one of the most successful and done significantly better than the vast majority of other ones how obvious was it in the early days that you had found product market then what what do you think it was about go student that kind of set you apart from the other platforms
1: i, I fully agree with you i mean if you look into the space on a, on a global level there are really not that many players around it who really cracked the model and, and scaled it up i think one of the key things that differentiate us is definitely this execution obsession we have built a great team around in the last two three four years that is executing on our strategy extremely well. You need to have right execution. A good idea is nothing without the right execution. And then this pivot, this shift from the student to the parent, combined with giving them phone calls, being able to sell them also long term memberships, this definitely helped a lot in uh, building a, a nice business case around it. And then the third part is investors like to invest in companies that have a big addressable market, but often education companies only operate on a local level. So we said we need to grow quickly into other countries to increase also the addressable market in which we operate, which allow us to raise even more money at even uh, much higher valuations. So growing quickly into other countries and making the proof that our business model can also work elsewhere was also one of the big and differentiating decisions we took compared to other companies
2: when you say operational obsession what do you mean by that and how, how do you build a culture within a company
1: of operational obsession i mean first and foremost you need to hire people where you can trust that they can work 100 percent hands on if you for example hire your vp of sales or you hire like a head of marketing in sales the expectation of that person is to be hands-on and build out the processes from scratch. You cannot expect to hire such a person that is then just wanting to become a manager and finding other people who do that job. So finding people in this building up phase, in this early phase who are really like hands-on, we, we use HubSpot for example, right? Go into HubSpot, build out the processes, try them out, be obsessed with testing what works best. This is a very concrete example what what you need for for your company to be successful.
0: And it sounds like you basically were the first ed tech company to really master network effects, which means that once you crack that, fundraising becomes easier because that money is going towards scaling. And you've been involved, you've raised a couple of what, what we would describe as mega rounds, including from people like Tencent and SoftBank. What do you think was the most compelling part of your kind of pitch as go students and what would be your number one bit of advice to founders
1: that are fundraising so i remember when we started the company that was early 2016 over the course of three and a half years we didn't do really any revenue but we were depending on vc money and external money because uh, because of the testing because trying out different things So when we did fundraising back then, it was all about the vision. It was all about the people that founded the company and the personal story you have to tell. Later on, when we started with our business model and we scaled it up, this was only one part of it, right? It always starts with the story. Why do you build that company? What's your vision? Do you really want to build like the largest education company in the world combined with data proof points? What is the traction that you have built so far? What are the unit economics? What is the addressable market? Why are you better than other competitors from a technological perspective? So then you had this like combination of personal story plus undermined with the right data. This helped us in raising this these mega rounds. And you've talked a bit about the, the business model and clearly you experimented quite a lot with that
2: over the years. Maybe it'd be worth just telling the listeners what what that business model is for for you guys, how it works, how people
1: interact with the platform and who pays who. Yeah, so the core business model we have today that makes most of our revenue is we connect one child in the age of 6 to 19 or 20 with one world-class teacher in a one-on-one live online environment. So we basically put them into a Zoom call and the platform we have developed monitors Everything that happens before the lesson, during the lesson, and after the lesson. So we really take you by the hand and support you long-term. And we sell that service directly to the parents. So the parents are the ones who sign up. We give them a phone call, try to understand what the child needs. And then after they try it out for free, we sell them, let's say, a one-year membership that includes eight lessons per month. And then part of the money as a commission goes to us and the other part of the money goes directly to the teacher.
0: And security and data protection, and that must be really, really important to you guys. So how do you go about a topic like that internally, which is so important? And do you create like a specific team around that kind of part of the product? How do you look at such a core component
1: like that? Actually, we have two angles to that. We have one, let's call it the human security component, which means we want to make sure that the kids can operate in a safe environment, which basically means we need to make sure we need to make 100% sure that the teachers that we allow to go onto the platform, that they are strong and that we can trust them. So we have basically created a three-step application process to ensure their quality, their pedagogical skills. And to do like a proper background check in the uk for example we do a dbs check with every teacher that is uh, applying to our platform and overall we accept in the uk around four percent only of all applications to make sure that the kid can feel safe with the teacher and that they have a high quality and then there's like this technical safety component to make sure that we can operate gdpr compliant and that we can fulfill highest security standards on the technical platform. For that, we hired the best engineers, so we try to hire the best engineers. We have created two external hubs as well. We have developed one hub in Sofia and Bulgaria. We have developed another hub in Moscow and Russia. We also hire engineers completely remotely all over the world. So build out the best engineering team that you can find to make sure that you don't do mistakes there. Or what do you think you need to build to stay ahead of the
2: competition and continue to offer real value to the students and to the parents. So
1: several things around that. First and foremost, your product, the platform that you have developed has to be world-class. So the level of convenience always has to be the highest among any other comparable services that you can find, whether this is finding a teacher offline, finding a teacher on a traditional marketplace finding a teacher via other sources. So the convenience level has to be the highest one. Second thing in education, it's all about trust, quality, and results. So you need to be obsessed with the results that you want to generate for the children and for the teachers. So you need to make sure that when your child uses GoStudent, that you can be sure that the performance and the foundation is improving rapidly over the course of the next months and is improving faster than on any other platform. Let's take an example of Cambridge University, Oxford University. They build up a reputation over the last decades, and this makes it so difficult to replicate that university. You cannot just put a university next to them and say like, this is now the new Oxford, the new Cambridge, and they have built up that reputation, which makes them very defensible. And then the third thing is affordability. Education is something that has not been innovated a lot in the last decades, which also means that the prices for good education services have increased. So we need to drive more innovation here. We need to try to build out an ecosystem to give more value to the customers, the parents, the teachers, and therefore lower the price points. I think it's really
2: interesting with companies that, you know, they build a product, they get some users. In your case, you experience huge growth. You know, on this topic of kind of iterating and improving the product, how do you manage for a product and UX perspective when you find a new way, a UX change to make the experience better for customers? How do you build that into the platform without kind of alienating or confusing existing customers? And do you have to do it very incrementally or do you have to give people tutorials on the new
1: way that the platform works? So how how do you manage that? It's a good question. So what we normally do is... We take a sub-sample of our customers, maybe depending on what we want to test. Let's take, for example, customers who have been extremely loyal, so who have been with us already for quite, quite a long time, because they have a higher tolerance of testing out, because they already know the service, they are satisfied with the service. So they are perfect in, in trying out uh, completely new features. Or we take a sub-sample of people who just recently joined and we try to optimize something to make them even more engaged than later on. So it's a really tricky topic, taking sub-samples of your existing customers, really trying to understand what is it that you want to test out, then implementing it. And then also we do a lot of like direct calls with our customers and teachers. So we really pick up the phone, we call our teachers, we try to ask them on their experience, we try to ask the kids and parents so uh, make your hands dirty grab the phone and, and really try to understand what they need and want. And
0: you're looking for feedback from customers or parents or kids or the teachers I guess because they're also your, your customers what tools do you use and are, are you looking at things like net promoter scores or do you have different KPIs internally and how do you go about kind of gathering that data and assessing whether a change has worked or improve the experience
1: Yeah. so in our case since the product is not only the platform itself but is also like the relationship between the teacher and the kids that they build up and the experience in the video call that they have so the actual kind of learning lesson our feedback that we collect is quite comprehensive so we collect qualitative feedback meaning We ask also parents and kids after lessons, how did you like the lesson? Do you have some other like notes that you want to share with us? Same goes for the teacher. We also have quantitative feedback where we, for example, can measure things like the speaking time of the teacher and the kid in such a lesson. Because when the speaking times are more equal, this lead to higher engagement rates. Or quantitative matrices can also be things like how often do they meet per week? Are they punctual in the lessons? Is the Are the grades, so the digital exercises that we assign to the kids, are they actually improving or are they not improving? And if yes, how fast are they improving? And why is this teacher then better than the other teacher? So to answer your question in a nutshell, we do collect comprehensive feedback, both qualitatively and quantitatively, also including things like NPS score that you had or a CSAT score. And then once we collect all of that feedback that we, that we get, we try to optimize on that and see, okay, what is it that has a high value for us at the moment? And then define an action plan on, let's say, features we want to implement to improve that value or improve other values.
2: Just to, to zoom out a little bit from the kind of operation of the business and, and out to the kind of wider, wider market and your vision, I'm a VC at episode one. And we, we don't actually look at that much ed tech because we've struggled to find an angle, a B2B angle, which is what we invest in. But for me, healthcare and education are two of the biggest sectors, biggest spend in most economies that are yet to be disrupted in a massive way. And I think education is particularly interesting in that it's, there are people coming at it from all different angles and there are people coming at it like you from the, from the B2C angle. And still, no one seems to have found a great way to disrupt the sort of school system and education in that regard using tech. I wonder if you have a grand vision for education and
1: how GoStudent feeds into that. I mean, the mission statement for us as a company is to build the number one global school. What does that mean, actually? If you think of education and you brought up schools... Education can be, especially in the, the, the K-12 sector, so education for kids in the age of like six to 18, 19, you can see these two buckets. You have the morning market, so that is everything that relates to school, and you have the afternoon market, services directly going after the parents and kids for tutoring, for test preparation, getting into the right universities, getting into vocational schools, etc. I think in order to really revolutionize the education system and to be able to build this number one global school, we started out in the afternoon market offering one specific service, one-on-one online teaching. And now in the next phase of the company to let that vision become more true, we also need to diversify ourselves and build out an ecosystem of services that provide value also for schools in the morning market to make their administration easier, to make the life of the teacher easier. We just acquired a company that provides school communication. So it allows the teacher to communicate more directly with the parents, providing good content based on the local school curriculum, increasing our offerings on the afternoon market, because only then when you get this, the morning market and the afternoon market, when you bring them together then you can build out the synergies and you can maximize the value that you give to the family. So this is where we want to go. I suppose you get onto the topic of
2: like government's policy on on education. Will there come a point where, or maybe you're already there, where you are speaking to government about policy, about regulation, about how private companies like GoStudent can kind of move their education system forward?
1: Yes, I mean, the way I think about it in the education world, like governments and and private companies, is a bit like, think of the infrastructure of a city or of a country. So you have the government who needs to make sure that the infrastructure, the street systems, the camel systems, all these things that they work efficiently in a city, in a country. And then you have private companies. They bring that innovation onto the streets. They build cars. They build bicycles. They build e-scooters. They build public transport systems. So, you have a, a perfect synergy between the the government project and private projects, because the private companies they bring them, they they innovate on a daily basis. they lower the price point for the car, for the bicycle, for things that you can use. And this is the mindset we need to start creating in education. It's not either or. it's how can the government initiatives work together and be integrated with the innovation of hundreds of really amazing education products out there.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating how it kind of has such a big impact across kind of society. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about Felix, the founder. So what, if anything, do you think separates you? What gives you an edge as a founder? And how do you think about maximizing your performance? And is there anything that you do that you think really kind of helps you to be the best founder you can be?
1: I mean, one thing that I have always been since since i'm a kid i mean i i remember i for example i started playing chess when i was in kindergarten and, and developed a huge passion for that and then when i start playing that then i want to become the best in that field and i try to practice then really like on a daily basis and improve myself and with everything that set as a goal to myself i really try to reach that and to be extremely persistent with that and stay on track and i think this is something you definitely need as a founder of any sort of company, or if you want to achieve something, you you set goals and then then you want to reach them. And if you can't reach them by your own, then you build a team. As a team, you can follow that. So this is definitely one of the things that sets us apart. And I mean, especially in education, everybody told us six years ago, oh my God, how can you be so crazy to build like an education company? There's no one else who, who managed to build a really large scale company. And uh, I mean now six years later I mean I think we set the right foundation now and now that the next phase comes in we had a lot of moments also in the in the first years where we it was not clear if we can continue like that or not but we always knew we need to stay ahead we have this clear vision there is a way we just need to find the right way and then let's execute on that determination and resilience then sounds like yes 100 <laughs> percent and
2: you touched on it there, but from the outside it really looks as though Ghost Student has been a plain sailing, huge success story with with no bumps along the road. But I'm sure that isn't the case. So I'd love to hear, and I'm sure the listeners would as well. Were there ever times where you feared for the future of the company? Were there problems you had that you thought would be really difficult to overcome? Fundraising horror stories? Any times where you thought, you know, the company was in danger and you,
1: you were fearing for its future i mean generally i'm always a very optimistic person (laughs) so even if you're standing kind of already on the cliff on the on the edge shortly before you fall down i i still think that there's maybe like a big bird coming and then and picking me up um, and prevents me from falling but to give you maybe one more concrete story we had that was i think around 2017 2018 So it was really like in the phase of the company before finding the business model. It was the phase of trying out different models with the kids that we had on the platform to monetize them. But most of these initiatives kind of fell apart. And we were in need of of additional money because we had to pay engineers. We had to pay some people in in the company, but we didn't do any revenue. So we were 100% depending on on external investors. We were looking to raise, it was back then around 500,000 euros. And one day before we had the notary signing to put a seal on it, one of the investors kind of called us and said, ah, no, it's, uh, they fear too much and they don't want to do it. And we also knew at that time, we only had one more month a uh, run rate. So if we don't find someone else and the other investor, we, there were two investors, the other investor said, okay, if this one investor is not going with us, then we will, we will also don't go. This was a situation not so easy. Luckily, and it was really like kind of a coincidence in an advanced kind of friend circle, we found then one person who also shares has like a huge interest for education and we were able to convince him to step in in like basically under one week then and he saved our lives. An awesome
2: story. I guess. Have you
1: spoken to that investor who pulled out since becoming a unicorn? Yes, actually, they came in then at a later time again. But the uh, yeah, it was it was 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 all a bit tricky.
0: <laughs> That's great. I mean, it shows how close it can get to the wire. In those situations when you know it feels like something has gone against you, how do you personally? tend to deal with those situations is there someone you speak to or do you go and exercise or like what? what's your process for dealing with that mm-hmm. maybe that one email or that one phone call that can kind of derail your whole day
1: to be honest with you for me like the the closest person here is definitely my co-founder Gregor I, I like to compare it uh, I mean to a relationship right I mean you have Also, when you think of a personal relationship, it's a roller coaster. You have ups, you have downs, which is completely normal. But if the person kind of is your sparing partner, you can make it through all the problems and you can make it through all these ups and downs. So this is how I see it. So I'm super thankful here of him to have him on this journey since the beginning. And especially in these moments, I think it's important to have like a, a sparing partner and not let you freak out. And then think of okay, what are options that we have on the table and then let's let's find a solution. For sure. A problem shared is a problem hard after all.
0: I was gonna ask a little bit about what's been the hardest part. So I mean we've talked about you know those moments where fundraising is maybe close to falling through or difficult times and going to a co-founder, but out of kind of product sales, operations, like what do you think for you and for maybe your
1: foresight to maybe other companies, what do you think is the hardest part of building a unicorn? I think that most difficult part, at least in our case, um, I mean, of course, everyone, every company is a bit different in the backgrounds of them. But for us, it was definitely the product market fit. So finding the really the right business model that we can execute on. Because if you don't have a working business model with with some like sustainable unit economics, you can never scale it up. So the phase to get there that's extremely, extremely tough. And Once you get there, once you see, okay, the model can actually work, you, you can have like a profitable model, then it's all about scaling it up. And then it comes into the operational execution part. But really finding this product market fit, I have to say, I think it's one of the key challenges apart from, of course, finding the right founding team and, and apart from finding the, the right people from, from early on
2: brilliant yeah it's great advice and yeah it's also you know the the hiring finding the right people to do all all of this stuff is i'm sure difficult did you guys ever find a smart way to hire the best people or did you find that people were attracted to you through your fundraising journey and because i'm interested particularly in the early days when there were the the obvious signs of success how did you manage to attract the very best people to, to join your
1: team so in the very early days it was a lot of trial and error to be really honest with you because we were extremely, I call it like greenhorns, right? We we didn't build a, a big company before that. So we were kind of like first uh, slash second time founders. But in the early days, you need to share like the vision with the people that, that you want to attract because the money is definitely not the case because uh, in other companies, they could make more money. But yeah, it's the stories you need to tell to to convince them. I mean, today, actually, this might also be interesting to some of the listeners, but today we actually have a lot of resources internally for headhunting. So we have by now almost like 20 people full-time doing headhunting internally, plus two external agencies. And for a lot of the positions, let's say above team lead, we do a lot of headhunting. So we try to identify companies that are the best ones in certain domains. Let's say you want to hire like a digital artist for the creative studio apartment then you look at who are the best companies doing that maybe it's like a it's a movie studio because they have the best kind of creative people there and then you hire the people from that company to join you or if you want to hire for like an accounting person what are the like three four five companies that are the best ones in accounting and then optimize for that so we really leverage on our internal headhunting resources to make sure that we get nowadays the best talent into, into the company.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great trick. And it's exactly what we and, and the listeners love to hear, those, those little insider tricks. So it's been absolutely fantastic hearing all of your insight and, and, and lots of great stuff, great advice. Good to hear your story. But now we will move on to the dinner party guest game. We always ask our guests... If they had a business dinner, business lunch, who are the three people that you would like to invite to that?
1: I mean, in general, I think for dinner, it's always good to have a family dinner, (laughs) to get outside the business world maybe for an hour or so. But from a business perspective, I mean, some people that come to my mind, two people are actually not alive anymore. One person is called Richard Feynman. He was a great physicist uh, in the 20th century and um, a great academic person. And he was also like a person who created like an obsession and passion around like teaching physics, complex physics in a very easy way, especially in the, in the field in which we operate the education and, and teaching. The quality of education depends on the quality of the teacher. And someone like Richard Feynman, he was able to influence, I think, thousands of people globally because of his teaching abilities to also go into that domain. So this thing could be a really great sparing partner for an evening. Another one also coming more from the academic world is uh, called John von Neumann. He was like, in general, like a universal genius. One of probably the last ones in the 20th century who developed basically breaking results in, in all different domains, in engineering, in game theory, biology. So talking to him in an evening, how he builds the bridges across industries would be super interesting. Last one... Tim Cook from Apple, how it is to run the largest company in the world. I think that must also be like very interesting conversation with him.
2: But it's going to be a great dinner. I think the, yeah, the educators are actually particularly interesting because I suppose, you know, you educate a hundred people, make them those people that you're teaching great in their field. And there's a sort of multiplier effect because they're then going to go off and do great things. Who their kids are going to go off and do great things. The people they teach can do great things. Really cool. Felix, it's been awesome having you on the show. We've thoroughly enjoyed it, filled with insight. We hope you've enjoyed it too.
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Felix. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Riding Unicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.